Luke keeps jumping ahead of his characters. He interrupts the dramatic scene of Saul's conversion and jumps to Damascus to introduce us to Ananias and to tell us that Ananias is seeing a vision as Saul is on the road. He jumps ahead when Peter is in Lydda and introduces us to Tabitha or Dorcas in the city of Joppa. He jumps from Joppa, once Peter gets there, he jumps from Joppa to Caesarea and introduces us to to, uh, Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion living in Caesarea. Luke keeps leaping ahead of his characters. We get introduced to Ananias before Saul does. We get introduced to Tabitha and Cornelius before Peter ever arrives. Luke takes us along, puts us in different places, and then the characters, the main characters of the story, have to catch up with us. It's a clever literary device. It creates uncertainty, questions, curiosity. We want to see what happened to Saul. What happened to Saul after he rose from the ground on the road to Damascus? And we're not with Saul anymore. Suddenly we're jumping ahead into Damascus. Why? Who is this Ananias? What has he got to do with Saul? Why are we in the house of Cornelius all of a sudden? I thought we were following Peter. Why are we now with a Roman centurion instead of a Jewish apostle? But this isn't just a literary device to create curiosity, to ask questions, to keep us moving ahead in the narrative. It's also a theological device. It's one of the ways that Luke shows us that the Spirit is always rushing ahead of the apostles, always rushing ahead of the church. Keeping in step with the Spirit is not keeping at a leisurely pace with the Spirit as a companion at our side. Acts shows us that keeping in step with the Spirit means rushing ahead to catch up with where the Spirit is leading. Saul has to catch up with the Spirit who's showing a vision to Ananias. Peter has to catch up with the Spirit who's calling him to Joppa and then catch up with the Spirit who is sending him along to Caesarea. As important as the apostles are, as important as the human characters of the book of Acts are, they are not the Lord of the church. The spirit of the risen Jesus is the Lord of the church. And he determines the the path that the church takes. The last time we saw Peter in the book of Acts, he was in Samaria. He was laying hands on the Samaritans who had been converted under the ministry of Philip so that the Samaritans could receive the Spirit. And Peter is still in the northern territories above Jerusalem, north of Judea. He's still in Samaria and he's traveling around areas that are part of Galilee. Philip has been there already. Again, the Spirit has jumped ahead of Peter. Wherever Peter goes, there are already saints there. There are already saints in Lydda. There are already saints in Joppa. There's a Gentile God-fearer waiting for Peter in Caesarea. Like Philip, Peter is going through the territories of the northern kingdom. And he's spreading the gospel to those tribes, those separated tribes, that centuries before had renounced the house of David. And Peter is going around announcing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. And in Lydda, and in Joppa, and in Caesarea, in all these territories that were once estranged from the house of David, the people respond to the message and to the miracles 
and they submit themselves to the greater Solomon, the one that's greater than the Solomon that they renounced. Luke tells us three stories about Peter's ministry in the Northern Territories. The first two are resurrection stories. Peter has been doing resurrection from the beginning of his ministry. As soon as the Spirit falls at Pentecost, he's healing people. He raises up a lame man at the doorway, at the gate of the, at the beautiful gate of the temple. When Peter's in Jerusalem, he walks along the pathways of Jerusalem, the streets of Jerusalem, and people line up their sick and their demon-possessed beside the path so that Peter's shadow can raise them up. And he does the same again in Lydda and then in Joppa. Aeneas has been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden. But Peter gets to Lydda and takes him and calls him to rise up from his bed and Aeneas rises up. Aeneas has been in a state of living death, paralyzed, immobilized. He's given new life. And while Peter is dealing with the aftermath of that and the people of Lydda are turning to the Lord, the scene goes to Joppa, where there is a woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas. She's a mother to the saints. She's caring for the widows as the seven care for the widows in Jerusalem. We find out that she's clothing the widows. She's making garments, tunics, and robes for the widows. She's a mother among the people of Joppa, and she falls sick and dies, and they send for Peter. And Peter goes to the upper room of, of, Lydia's, of uh, uh, Tabitha's house, takes her hand, raises her up, and she is resurrected. In Lydda and in Joppa, Peter brings resurrection life. Peter raises up a man from his sickbed. He raises up a woman from her deathbed. He raises up a new Adam and a new Eve because through Peter, Jesus is restoring the human race. Those of you who are versed in the classics can't hear the name Aeneas without immediately thinking of the Aeneid, the great epic about the founding of Rome. This Aeneas represents Rome being raised up. Tabitha is a Jewish woman being raised up. And Peter already, even before he meets Cornelius, the God-fearing Gentile, is putting together Jew and Gentile. He's raising up Rome and Israel and marrying them so that they become one new humanity. The two episodes progress. There's an intensification in these two episodes. The episode about Aeneas is very brief. Uh, Peter doesn't do much but go into the room and call him to rise up from his paralysis, and he rises up. We don't know anything much about Aeneas. We know much more about Tabitha. There's more detail given. Peter not only is raising a living person from a bed of paralysis, but he's raising a dead body and giving it new life. That's a greater miracle. He even ascends. He's in the house of Aeneas, but he's in an upper room. He's ascended to an upper room in the house of Tabitha. There's an intensification, and as chapter 10 opens, we're led to wonder, what could people, Peter do for an encore? What's Peter going to do to top what he's just done? He raised a man who's been paralyzed for eight years. He raised a woman from the dead. What can be greater than that? What miracle could be greater than raising the dead? The end of chapter 9 gives us a hint of what's to come. 
Peter is by the sea. Peter is in the house of a tanner named Simon. And Peter is in Joppa. And each one of those details anticipates what's going to happen in the next chapter. Peter's by the sea. And in in the Bible, the sea represents the Gentile world, the world of the Roman Empire. If Peter's by the side of the sea, he's about to launch off into the sea, into the Gentile sea, meet Gentiles and call them into the kingdom. He's in the house of a tanner. That doesn't mean much to us, but for many ancient Jews, tanning was an unclean and disgusting profession, always dealing with dead bodies, always dealing with dead flesh. It wasn't technically unclean by the law, but many Jews had created guardrails and fences around the law, and tanners were considered outside the pale. And yet Peter's living in a house of a tanner. And Peter's in Joppa. Joppa should ring some bells, especially since you already heard the Old Testament lesson a few moments ago. Joppa is the place where Jonah goes when he's supposed to be going elsewhere. He's told to go to Nineveh, Instead, he starts making his way to Tarshish, which is at the other end of the Mediterranean. And he launches out from Joppa, the port city of Joppa. Peter's in the same place as Jonah. Is Peter also going to be a reluctant prophet? A prophet who doesn't want to go and preach the gospel and the good news to Gentiles? Peter's by the sea. Peter's in the house of a tanner. Peter is beside Joppa. And we're set up to expect a story about purity. Perhaps a story about a reluctant prophet sent to preach to Gentiles. And those anticipations that we have right at the end of chapter 9 are immediately fulfilled because the scene shifts again and we're introduced to another new character that Peter hasn't met yet. We're introduced to Cornelius, a Gentile, But he's a Gentile God-fearer. This is not an ordinary pagan Gentile. Luke describes him as as displaying a fourfold piety. He fears God with all his house. He's a devout man. He gives alms to the Jewish people. He prays to God continually. And God has heard those prayers. And God has recognized those alms. And those alms and prayers have ascended before the Lord as memorials. As if they were sacrifices. Ascending like smoke up before the Lord. And the Lord responds. And the Lord sends an angel to to Cornelius. And gives Cornelius strange instructions. Send to Joppa. Find a man named Simon who's living with another man named Simon. And bring him here. Does Cornelius know what he's doing? Does Cornelius know anything about this Simon Peter? Has he ever heard of Jesus? At this point, we don't know. But Cornelius, it doesn't matter. He's been given instructions from an angel of heaven. He knows how to give orders. He knows how to take orders. And he immediately does what the angel has instructed and sends three men to Joppa to fetch Peter. Meanwhile, Peter is praying on a housetop in Joppa. And Peter, too, sees a vision. He hears a voice. He doesn't see an angel. He sees instead a vision of a vessel being uh, brought out of heaven, descending from heaven. Sorry about that. A, A vessel descending from heaven 
looking like a sheet tied at the four corners, and it's full of animals. It's full of reptiles. It's full of mammals. It's full of birds. It's descending from heaven as if it were a menagerie of heavenly animals. A world, a heavenly world descending down to Peter, held up by four corners as the earthly world is extended to four corners. And the voice tells Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter refuses. Peter refuses three times. The Peter denied Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest, refuses the heavenly voice three times. The vision happens three times, and each time Peter says, no way, Lord. The response is pretty strong. No way. I have never eaten anything unclean. I've never eaten anything common. I've never eaten anything contaminated. It's not just that there are unclean animals inside the sheet. There are unclean animals. But why doesn't Peter just pick out a clean animal and kill that and eat it? But again, the Jews have been busy setting up fences around the law. If an unclean animal associates with a clean animal, according to Jewish tradition, that clean animal is contaminated by its contact with the unclean animal. Peter can't just reach in and pull out a sheep or pull out a bull and arise and kill and eat that. They're all contaminated. Peter takes this as a kind of food test. Arise, kill, and eat something unclean? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to seize forbidden fruit as Eve did in the garden, as Israel did in the wilderness. I'm not going to sin against the Lord by eating something unclean. And yet he's perplexed by the vision. What could this mean? What could this vision mean? It comes from heaven. The voice sounds like a heavenly voice. Why would God be tempting me to eat unclean food? But before he can figure it out, figure it out, he's interrupted. And the entourage from Cornelius is there and summoning him to go with them along to Caesarea. Cornelius doesn't know what's going on. Peter doesn't really know what's going on. He's still perplexed, trying to figure out what the vision means when he's told to go down and meet with these men. But we have some clues. We have some clues about what's going on. We've seen a double vision before. In fact, we saw it earlier in chapter 9. Saul sees a vision on the road to Damascus. Ananias sees a vision in his house in Damascus. And those two visions are works of the Spirit to bind together Saul and Ananias, to provoke them to meet each other, to bring people who are spatially distanced into one place. And the two visions that Cornelius and Peter sees are doing the same thing. The Spirit is the matchmaker. The Spirit binds things together. And the matchmaking spirit is sending Cornelius to send for Peter, and he's sending Peter to go and visit Cornelius. So Peter and Cornelius can be with one another. And we even get a clue to what's coming up. Not just that the Spirit is working to bring these two men together by bringing these two visions, but we get a hint of what might happen when Peter goes to Cornelius and to Caesarea. Beginning of verse 23. The men come from Cornelius. These are Gentiles. Peter doesn't know them. They're strangers. They tell him this bizarre story about a Gentile receiving a vision of angels and summoning him to Caesarea. And Peter gives them 
lodging. The verb is based on the root word xenos in the Greek. Xenophobia is a word that we get from that, fear of strangers. And in ancient Greek, the word means both stranger and guest. And the word especially refers to strangers who become guests, which is just what Peter is doing here. This is a turning point. Peter receives these Gentile strangers as guests. And he decides he's going to go to Caesarea. Will he also receive hospitality from a Gentile? It's okay for Jews to receive Gentiles. But a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile and eat with a Gentile, that's crossing the line. Will Peter do it? Peter gets to Caesarea. His entry is like a triumphal entry. He enters three times. He entered in verse 25. He entered in verse 27. He entered again. He entered before that in verse 24. 24, 25, and 27. He enters Caesarea. He enters Cornelius' house. He enters into a crowd of Gentiles. And in that crowd of Gentiles, in that assembly of Gentiles, Peter discloses what it is that his dream meant. Clean and unclean food was never just about clean and never just about food. Food is always about fellowship. Food is about communion. The limits of our diet are the limits of our table companionship. That's what the unclean and unclean laws were for. The unclean animals represented Gentiles. The clean animals represented Jews. To sit down at a table and eat an unclean animal was to defile yourself, and Jews refused to do that. Jesus, or the Lord, is protecting his people in the Old Covenant by preventing them from eating at the table of demons. He doesn't want Israel to become just another mere image of the Gentiles. And so he protects their table fellowship. But now Peter knows that something new is happening. Now Peter knows that there are no more unclean foods. But Peter knows something more than that. He, just, he knows that the food represents people. And so he tells this assembly of Gentiles, I know now, God does not show partiality. I know now not to call any man unclean or common. God cleansed the heavenly menagerie that came in the sheet. And now Peter applies it and he says, what's done in heaven should be done on earth. And God has declared all people clean. No matter what tribe or tongue or nation they come from, or no matter what race they are, if they fear God and seek to serve him, they are acceptable to God and therefore must be accepted by the brotherhood of the church. That's really the underlying message of Peter's sermon here in the house of Cornelius. He, he summarizes the gospel as he normally does, a gospel about Jesus, but he emphasizes the peace that Jesus brings. He emphasizes that Jesus is Lord of all and that he has been appointed to be judge of all. The good news is about our reconciliation with God. The good news is that forgiveness of sins is available through Jesus Christ. The good news is also there is no man who is unclean. That is the gospel because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus was anointed to be judge and Lord of all. 
because he came to bring peace, not only peace between man and God, but peace on earth among men. And notice what's happened here. The one who's changed in this story is not Cornelius. From the moment Cornelius is introduced, he's a pious and godly Gentile. He immediately obeys the voice of the angel. But Peter objects. Peter's confused by these new instructions. The one who changes here is not Cornelius, but Peter. Cornelius comes into the kingdom. Cornelius hears about the new covenant and is joined in with the disciples and the Jewish believers. But the new thing is happening to Peter. Peter receiving Gentile hospitality. Peter extending hospitality to Gentiles. Peter recognizing that God made from one blood all the nations of the earth, that there is no man who is unclean. And Peter represents all the Jewish believers here. We read Acts and we see that the Gentile problem is coming up over and over again. We read through Paul's letters and the Gentile problem comes up over and over again. It's not really a Gentile problem. The Gentiles coming into the family of God is the whole point of Israel. That's why Israel exists. That's why Abraham was called in the first place. What we call the Gentile problem in Acts and the rest of the New Testament is really the Jewish problem. Are the Jews going to receive Gentiles? And are the Jews going to let Gentiles receive them? Are they going to receive the hospitality of Gentiles? The Jewish world needs to be turned inside out. It needs to open up to become a hospitable environment for Gentiles. There's one last surprise, one last turning point. After Peter has preached, after Cornelius and the people have responded, actually while Peter's preaching, correct that, while Peter's still preaching, the Spirit again rushes ahead, the Spirit blows where he lists, the Spirit does what he wants, Peter doesn't even get to the end of his sermon, doesn't have a nice punchy conclusion, and the Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And they begin speaking with tongues. Peter and his friends know about God-fearing Gentiles. They know that, God, they know that, uh, that, that uh, Cornelius in particular is acceptable to God. But they didn't expect this. They didn't expect the Spirit to descend on Gentiles and give them the gift of tongues. They didn't expect the Spirit to descend on a house of Gentiles and sanctify that house as an outpost of the new decentralized temple that Jesus is building. The Gentiles are being incorporated into Israel on the same basis, on an equal footing with the Jews. That's why the Jews need to change. That's why the Jews need to repent and turn inside out. Midway through the story, Luke begins using a number of words with the prefix sun, sun. In Greek, the prefix sun means with. And there are four or five different verbs that are used that have sun as the prefix. There's a lot of withing going on. The Spirit is bringing Peter and Cornelius together so they can be with one another in the same place. He's bringing the Jews, Jews and Gentiles together so they can share mutual hospitality. Peter opens the house of Simon the Tanner to Gentile guests so that the Gentiles can open up their house 
to Jewish guests. And that mutual hospitality and extension of hospitality really is the story of the expansion of the church in the New Testament. The disciples in Jerusalem meet in houses and break bread from house to house. Peter goes to Samaria and lays hands on the Samaritans. The Spirit comes and consecrates a house in Samaria and consecrates Samaritans. Through Peter, Jesus makes the house of of Aeneas a house of healing and the house of Tabitha a house of resurrection. And then at the climax, at the turning point of Acts, the turning point of human history, God makes a Gentile house into a house of hospitality, receiving Gentiles. The church expands as more and more houses are opened up for hospitality, as more and more houses become outposts of the hospitality of God, which welcomes all who fear him and all who turn to him. After raising Tabitha from the dead, what can Peter do for an encore? What's greater than raising up a corpse and giving it new life? How about raising up the corpse of divided humanity and giving new life to a humanity that's been divided between Jew and Gentile for millennia? Of all the miraculous things that take place in these chapters, there is a man who's been lame for, paralyzed for eight years who's raised from his bed. There is a woman who's dead who's raised up. There are two visions. There are angels There are heavenly voices. The greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that takes place is the mutual hospitality of Jew and Gentile. That's the the encore. That's the true resurrection life that the church extends. Jews accepting hospitality as table companions in the house of Gentiles. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you who came to bring peace to earth, to bind us together by the Spirit as one body. And we thank you for the great revelation of this turning point in human history as the Spirit is extended to Gentiles in the house of a Gentile in the house of Cornelius in Caesarea. We thank you that we are the beneficiaries of that, that we who are distant, far away, estranged from God, without God and without hope in the world, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus and become part and one with the holy house as living stones, saints, holy ones. Father, we pray that this house would be a house of your hospitality, extending your hospitality to those lost around us, We pray that our homes would become outposts of your hospitality, that we would welcome strangers and those strangers would be treated as guests, honored guests. Fill us with the spirit of hospitality, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.